An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists, to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're very happy to welcome our guest, Michael Jansi, one of the giants of sustainable investing. He is the founder and longtime CEO of Sustainalytics, which was recently sold to Morningstar. Michael is now focused on the big picture as managing director for ESG Strategy at Morningstar, where he tries to broaden the adoption of sustainable investing across multiple asset classes and investor segments. He's also in charge of creating a culture of corporate responsibility at Morningstar. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you, John. It's really nice to be talking with you today. Let's get to your opinion. Your, your new role is almost to be an advocate across investor types and across asset classes. And you've been in the business for 30 years. So let me ask you the high level question. What's changed with investors in three decades, both for the better and for the worse? Well, John, you've been in this, this space a long time too, and early conversations, however important we felt environmental, social governance issues were to an investment decision that wasn't shared to say the least, across the broad spectrum of capital markets players. And I would say at first, much of the things that we were talking about and that we believed were important were ignored. I mean, we weren't even invited into some of those really key conversations. We shifted from being ignored to, I think, being treated as, an, as a nice to have. And I think governance was sort of the first foray into investors saying, yeah, you know, good governance. It's something that is a nice thing to look at. It can add value. At times, I think environmental and social issues lagged. But I mean, for most of my 30 years in this business, at least I would say we've been a nice to have sort of an accompaniment to the mainstream financial decision making and models in the investment side. But I think what's changed now, John, is we're viewed as a need to have. I think largely, wherever it is that you look in the world, across investment audiences, asset owners, from investment managers, again, in different parts of the world, across the, the different asset classes, there it's not that everyone believes that ESG, sustainability information, is key to every decision. Is there anything in the capital markets or investing that has 100% buy-in? Not very many things you can say that about. But largely now, people understand that sustainability and that integration of sustainability into an investment decision-making process can help you be a more informed investor, especially if your investment frame is over a longer period of time. And so I think that's what's changed is that we are now seen as that need to have and that you know puts a whole 
different view in regards to the quality of the insights we're providing, how we're delivering those insights at the security portfolio systems level. So the conversations are now becoming what I would say just a part of the investment conversation, which is the way I think it should be. So you mentioned the global view. The conventional wisdom is that the U.S. lags the rest of the world, and particularly Europe, in terms of responsible investing. Now, I used to subscribe to that conventional view, but I've come to believe that the reality is a little more nuanced. In fact, I recently saw a study suggesting that a higher percentage of U.S. individual investors had ESG-designated accounts than European investors. Now, as a Canadian, you don't have a dog in that fight. So you're the perfect person to ask, a Canadian who runs a global ESG firm. What are the regional differences, both in degree and in how investors express their ESG beliefs? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say is, if we think of Europe as a region, that's problematic. Just as to think of the U.S. as some homogeneous um, entity, it's never really been the case. I mean, as you well know, Europe is made up of uh, a number of different perspectives. And so the U.K. has different perspectives when it comes to ESG or has historically versus the Scandinavian countries versus Benelux versus France, um, for example. And I would, I think that the U.S. is largely the same, obviously, around these topics. But by and large, what I will say is that in some important aspects, Europe has been the intellectual hub of responsible investing or ESG. And I think that there's a lot of leading thinking that has come out of Europe. And I would even pinpoint that at least initially to the U.K. and capital markets in, in London. I do think the one area where Europe has is ahead of North America is in its the evolving understanding of fiduciary duty. I do think that the European markets embrace the fact that a fiduciary responsibility can encompass a broader range of issues than maybe were traditionally viewed as as part of the investment matrix. And so I think that the understanding that an evaluation of environmental social governance issues was absolutely critical to a fiduciary following through on the responsibilities to, to plan members or clients or whomever they might be. And I do think that that conversation continues to evolve in Europe in a way that is, I will say, ahead of, of many in North America. So. I think in Europe now, John, again, most investors are going to say, of course, I need to look at ESG issues, environmental, social governance issues as part of my investment process, because it will help me put together better portfolios. It will help me structure my investment portfolios in a way that's going to deliver better long-term risk-adjusted returns for my clients. But also in Europe, we're also seeing that conversation flip 180 degrees and say, well, that's true, but it's also my responsibility as an investment professional to start thinking about what impact my portfolio has on environment, has on social issues in the community at large. And so I think, again, we're in Europe, we're seeing this conversation 
evolve around fiduciary duty, that it's not just about the impact of environmental issues, for example, on my portfolio, but it is my responsibility as a fiduciary to think about the outcomes of those decisions and the impact of my portfolio on the environment. And so I think that's one way where where Europe continues to lead. But I also believe that, I mean, the United States is the largest capital markets in the world. And once it starts to move, it automatically has a leadership position, I would argue. And I think the statistic that you highlighted highlights one very important component where the United States is a leader, and that is in in the idea of starting to engage individuals, so sort of that retail and wealth segment of the market, and getting individuals, investors engaged in sustainable investing. We have seen sustainable asset growth or dramatic growth with individual investors in the retail and wealth space. Uh, tremendous growth in the United States, sort of doubling of assets so far this year compared to last, compared to 2019 and so on. And I think that's an area that is going to continue to be an important driver of this space and of this conversation moving forward. I also think an area where the U.S. market, quite frankly, has been ahead of any other market in the world historically is in what we're now called stewardship. You know, the idea that owners of companies have both um, the opportunity and responsibility to engage as owners with the companies that they own that are in their portfolio. I've argued for 30 years that from my perspective, U.S. investors have been the most effective at engaging and, and dialoguing with the companies that they own on the issues that are important to them, whether they fell within the boundaries of what we used to call corporate governance or broadening those conversations to environmental and social issues. And I think in large part that was supported by the fact that U.S. investors had the opportunity to also exercise their proxy, their vote in ways that investors around the world didn't have the luxury of doing for a variety of different reasons across all geographies and time spans. So again, I think you're absolutely right to say one one region of the world was far ahead of another. I think you have to break it down by regions. You also have to take it sort of issue by issue and recognize that each region has contributed to the growth, the maturity, the deepening of expertise across responsible investment and understand that no one part of the world leads in all areas across the entire spectrum. You mentioned a number of things that you and I could have a very long conversation about, which we will not do. But I do want to follow up on a couple of them because it was not that long ago that Europeans would tell me that the United States had horrible capital markets because you couldn't nominate directly directors to the boards. But I do think that, that the development of stewardship in the U.S. around corporate governance issues and with the Council of Institutional Investors forming in 1985 was a, was a major event and, and taught U.S. investors how to do that. But that leads to a secondary question, which is, are there regional differences in reliance on stewardship versus divestiture? There seems to be the traditional argument on what works, what doesn't, but there also seem to be some 
regional differences. You know, Norges Bank, the largest European investor, has always practiced an exclusionary bent. On the other hand, you had, for instance, CalPERS saying that Engine One, which challenged Exxon around climate change issues and won three board seats, would have won four board seats had people not divested. So do you see a, a distinction with one region leaning more on stewardship and one leaning more on exclusionary investing? You know, John, I really don't at this point. And I think that it's possible to say there were regional differentiations 30 years ago. I think you could probably say the United States was more of a exclusionary or divestment market in a, like, in a sense, which seems ironic given I've just said, I, I feel that U.S. investors have been the best at engagement. But here's the thing that, for me, your question really is an important one from my perspective. I simply do not like this conversation about divestment or engagement. I think uh, a lot of times in life, we forget that or isn't the only conjunction that we have. I am much a bigger fan of and as a conjunction. And so when I think of responsible investment, I think of it as a toolbox. And I think that, John, I recently, my wife and I bought a property outside of Toronto, 75-acre farm. And one of the things I've had to learn is to be a little bit more of a handyman. And I, I recognize the fact I had to buy a new toolbox and fill it with, with tools. And I've realized a couple things. First of all, uh, different jobs and different outcomes demand different tools. And you know what? Sometimes divestment might be the better tool for, this, for the, the particular institution at hand. And sometimes it might be engagement. Sometimes the two um, work best hand in hand. I've also learned, John, that you can have the best tools at your disposal, but to a, a greater or lesser extent, depending on the job, the ability to do a good job depends on the skill of the person handling the tool, right? So those are two lessons. But so this divestment versus engagement debate to me is a little bit of a distraction, to be quite honest. And I think that that one of the things that I see happening now, especially around the the climate transition or the energy transition, you you are now seeing large institutions taking very different paths. And instead of hammering at one another and saying one is along the wrong path and the other is along the righteous, I think we have to step back and reflect on the fact that um, I believe that the leaders of those large institutions believe that what they're doing is guided by fiduciary responsibility and that they are making decisions that are in the best interests of their plan members over the long term. And I know this, the leadership at some of those pension funds, for example, that are making the decision over time to divest from energy, I think it would be a mistake to say that is a values-based decision. I think that that may play part of it, but those decisions are at least partly rooted in the fact that they believe that the companies in their portfolio may not be successful in transitioning to a future that that they believe is coming and that no amount of engagement is going to 
be able to influence the number of companies in those sensitive sectors to change and transform their business models. And if you believe that this transition is about transitioning business models, not just lowering a carbon footprint, then I think you have to accept there'll be winners, there'll be survivors, and there'll be casualties. And so whether you choose to to divest, engage, or do both, I think they all should need to be on the table. We shouldn't we shouldn't say one is misguided, one is the righteous path, as I say. And I think, we again, we have to recognize that leaders are making the decisions that they think are in the best interests of their plan members. And I think the other thing with engagement is engagement can be an incredibly powerful tool. But I think the example that you use with engine number one, and that would not have been a successful engagement, from my opinion, without the strong support behind the scenes or otherwise um, from Kelsters, we have to acknowledge the fact that that was successful, but to do that at scale, which is what you know we would need to do, is an entirely different conversation. I mean, part of the reason that that engagement was so successful is it took months and months and months of planning. It had a fairly sizable budget in regards to what transpired there. And so again, if you think about taking that one example and putting it out through an entire portfolio or sizable parts of a portfolio, I think you you need to start asking your questions again. It's not about is engagement the right tool, is divestment the right tool, is engagement the right tool. I think you have to start to think about how these things can begin to work together to achieve the objectives and the outcomes that you wish to achieve within the time frame that you feel you need to to get to that destination. So you've been very vocal in saying that investors and companies need to understand the future is not a series of incremental changes like subbing natural gas for coal or moving to electric vehicles. And you've argued, as you just did, that there's need to fundamentally rethink companies' business plans taking into account the cost of carbon, you can call it a carbon-adjusted return on capital metric. Is that available from you? Are you guys going to put that out as a product? It's a good question. I should say, I mean, yes, I believe exactly what you've just said. I think that the transition we're going through demands a more fundamental perspective on what might be coming down the pipe. And I do think, and it's not just myself, there's there's many other smart people within the investment community and outside the investment community that are thinking the same thing. And so these ideas of a carbon adjusted return on capital, return on investment are not, I don't want to take credit for those ideas. I'll take credit for listening to those smart people and thinking, yeah, th- this is exactly right. I mean, I do think when people talk about the fact that we're, you know, in the transition or an inflection point in regards and comparing it to past things like the Industrial Revolution and so on. I mean, if you look back at history, you can sort of say maybe in hindsight that there were incremental points along the way, but we saw wholesale change. I mean, that that's, that's what a revolution sort of <laughs> embodies. And I think that that's what we're talking about here. So will Sustainalytics Morningstar start to provide 
those types of metrics to help. I hope so. I hope that I hope that's part of what we can do. I mean, Sustainalytics now, Morningstar is investing very heavily in our climate solutions team, and and so they've got a very ambitious work plan in front of them that will hopefully start to deliver some of these things into 2022. But I also believe that when we're what we're facing now, which is a transition uh, at scale uh, in a what appears to be an ever shrinking time frame, this is something that the entire industry, the entire capital markets is needing to focus on. And so it's not just about Morningstar Sustainalytics, it's about the other big players out there, the sell side shops, the buy side, the sell side, asset owners, asset managers, and the financial intermediaries that support all of us. This is something that's going to take a tremendous amount of creativity, contribution from all different parties. And so there's going to be a number of different different actors that that need to contribute to this and and also from a financial services perspective transition how we allocate capital so we want to be a part of it absolutely so i I, i'm going to get to that i just do want to point out that the business model and and carbon return on, on capital should give credit where credit is due which is some thought leadership in the field from Mark Van Cleef at Future Zero and from Close Consulting. So Morningstar is a data provider. And in the end, investing is all about data. And we've seen huge changes in that area. I mean, when you started, information flow was one way from a company out. It was standardized, regulated, largely analog on paper, and fairly limited. And analysis of it used to be basically as good as the individual analyst assigned to it. Now there's virtually unlimited information all over the net. It's digital, cacophonious, unstructured, of various quality, but there's a lot of it. So you have to have analytical tools to get through it. Data scraping, machine learning, artificial intelligence. That's what's happened. What is he changing in the next five years or so? And how can investors more intelligently use this avalanche of available data and analysis? Well, I think you've described the situation that we're in, John, perfectly. There's a lot of noise out there. And so the good news is there's a lot more information available to us to evaluate companies across the environmental, social, and governance spectrum. When I was a teenager, John, I used to work in a store. I used to sell home entertainment and, and appliances. And in the home entertainment side of things, when we sold stereos, one of the key things we used to look at was a metric, was the signal-to-noise ratio. And I sort of still use that analogy now. Like, it's not so much the noise. you got to find the signal out uh, of there. And I mean... We're going to continue to get the tools to improve coverage. All of the things you talked about from a technology standpoint allows us to cover more entities. And that's a good thing because it's not just public markets where these issues are important. We're seeing assets and money flow into private markets and there's less transparency there. So we need technology to help bring this out. It helps us to connect the dots in this unstructured data 
and the like. It helps both gather and analyze data across multiple languages. So all of these things are very good, and I think we're going to improve over our ability to do that over the next five years. But maybe I'll talk about two maybe unsexy things, John. Um, I still remain a huge believer in people. And so from my standpoint, technology remains a tool to help people make better and smarter and more informed decisions. And so no doubt the technology is going to continue to improve. Technology will continue to take some of those more mundane tasks away from people, which is great. It will help people or will help make connections that human beings may not be able to make or make as quickly. But at the end of the day, what I believe, John, is is while the technology will continue to improve, I, I actually think in our space, people are going to increasingly or continue to play a really important role. Like I, I simply don't see machines replacing people on the investment management side or investment analysis side of it. And so that may say, seem a little bit counterintuitive, but here's something else that I think is going to improve over the next five years. And I'm actually very excited about this. And, and again, it's a little bit to back to the future, maybe a little bit unsexy, but the fact of the matter is that when it comes to sustainability reporting, I'm actually most excited about what we're seeing and the shift of sustainability reporting now moving from a hodgepodge of regional voluntary initiatives into a more globally aligned mandatory reporting structure. So I am most excited right now, to be honest with you, about the recent developments with the IFRS um, taking on the Value Reporting Foundation, which of course was an amalgamation of SASB and the International Integrated Reporting Council, the Climate Disclosure Standard Boards, and so on. And, and IFRS's announcement, it will be putting together the International Sustainability Standards Board, the ISSB. I think that is a huge move forward because it brings sustainability reporting now. We talked about these issues as being a need to have. It's now finding a home in the mainstream organizational, well-governed structure of the IFRS. And that's huge. And I think that we have many ways of finding information and technology has been a big part of that. But the foundation of any good analysis, I think from my perspective, has always been and remains strong, good, corporately aligned corporate disclosure. Can you imagine a world, John, where we didn't have GAP or IFRS? It would be complete chaos. And so there's many ways to evaluate a company using the standard financial tools we had, but it all is grounded in the fact that we have accounting and assurance that we can largely trust and it's largely globally aligned. We need that in sustainability. So where do I see, I think that that move to bring sustainability reporting into the more mainstream, the well-governed, respected regimes and structures we have in place is huge. It's gonna just create a much stronger foundation. It's going to allow for information that we've never had been able to have complete confidence around and then the technology and the other great things will be able to supplement it so i know that is 
nothing to do with technology per se, um, but it's the most exciting thing. And I think the most important thing that we've seen in the sustainability side of things for quite a long time. It, it has nothing to do with technology, but it has everything to do with data, Yeah, which is what technology is being applied to. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have bought a place with 75 acres. I hear you're being a sustainable farmer. What are you growing? Tell me what that's been like. Well, yeah, a big shift. And uh, you're right. It was a move away from the city that my wife and I wanted to do. The timing is right with both my daughters off at, at university and so on. Well, we've got a big garden. And so we both like good food. So we try to grow as much of our own food as we possibly can. And so, and preserve that food in a variety of different ways. So that's the one side of it. But we also, um, we're carnivores here, John. And so we think it's important to um, uh, have a connection to your food in that way. So we raise at different times on the farm. We've got beef cattle, we've got turkeys, chickens, ducks, rabbits, and, and so on. So that's part of the mix here, along with the standard dogs and cats and assorted other domestic pets too. It's great to be connected in that way. And we're really focused on restoring health to the soil here. And my work has been so global and in some ways esoteric, trying to achieve positive environmental and social outcomes through the capital markets. And I guess this is a little bit of a desire to be more local and more tangible, get your hands dirty in the dirt and try to, I guess at a, just a much more micro level, contribute to the things that I think you and I both think are important. Yeah, let's end with some quick answer questions. I happen to know that you are a rabid sports fan. What are your teams? Well, let's see. We're talking at the time when, you know, football's at the top of mind. So I've been a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, part of Steeler Nation since uh, the mid-1970s. So they remain um, my favorite football team. Baseball, the Toronto Blue Jays, a uh, tough season for us. Tough to be a fan of the Jays when you're in the same division as the Yankees, the Red Sox, and, and the Tampa Bay Rays. It's a strong division. And then I'm a Canadian, so hockey's on that list. And as painful as it's been to be a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, that's the situation I'm in. They haven't won the Stanley Cup since I was uh, three years old, and I'm 57. So there's been some heartbreak along the way, but every year is a new year. So since you're a data guy and a sports fan, who's had more influence on the world? Bill James, who invented sabermetrics, or advanced baseball statistics, the money bull type of analysis or sustainalytics? I am a huge fan of Bill James. In fact, John, on my shelves in the office, I still have Bill James baseball abstracts that he wrote early in mid 1980s. And I know he's now a name people know from Moneyball, but one of the reasons I love baseball was because it was so statistically oriented and you could evaluate the value of players through statistics, but I like Bill because I didn't quite know the connection to what I was doing, obviously at the time or what I'm doing now, but he challenged conventional wisdom and he just asked questions about baseball. Wasn't there a better way to, to evaluate the, the value that a player had to, to a team and to winning? So he, I, I just love Bill James and I loved how he, 
he's been able to change the game. But I, I hope the answer, and I think the right answer, and the true answer is I think Sustainalytics has had more of an impact, and I hope more of an important impact. That's not to say Bill's contributions to baseball globally haven't been useful, but I really hope that Sustainalytics has been able, at least in part, to achieve our mission, which is about providing the insights, data, and research that our clients need to make more informed investment and business decisions in the hope that those decisions lead to a more just and sustainable global economy. So I think we've played a part in that alongside many others like yourself. And I do believe that Sustainalytics has had a part to play in the fact that these issues are now on the agenda in a more significant way and we're hopefully starting to see continued traction and more progress in, in addressing some of the largest challenges of our time. What types of music do you like? I'm a rock fan. And as my wife will say, I probably don't think much about music that came out after 1990. So I'm a rock and roll fan, blues bass. My favorite band is Led Zeppelin from top to bottom. But I like that blue, any music that's sort of that roots blues oriented. So, you know, that genre of rock, um, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, those traditions, you know, guitar oriented um, and probably going back a few decades. Last question. If you were granted the ability to whisper one piece of information or advice into the ear of every investor and financial advisor and registered investment advisor in the world, what would it be? Don't ignore sustainability. Thank you, Michael. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Michael Jancy, who built Sustainalytics it's one of the premier global responsible investing data firms in the world used by clients with literally tens of trillions, yes, trillions with a T, dollars under management. And now he is being a sustainable farmer as well as driving ESG further into the marketplace. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, John. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Outside In is hosted by John Lukumnik and produced by Elizabeth Thompson for Spark Network. You can find our show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you leave us a review, as well as on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and wherever else you get your favorite shows. To get more information about our show and to stay in the know about future episodes, sign up for our newsletter on sparknetwork.com.